Physician assistants treat and prevent human illness and injury by providing a broad range of important healthcare services. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim speaks with nephrology physician assistants Peter Jurgensen, Karen Birchall, and Martha Vestfrill about the important work they do. Ms. Burchell, why did you decide to focus on patients with kidney disease? Well, it was actually by accident initially. I was quite happy in my previous job, and the PA that was here was leaving town and thought that it was something that I should look into doing, and I came and spoke to the nephrologist, and he didn't quite convince me initially, but after several phone calls, he finally convinced me, and I've been doing it for almost 20 years, and I thoroughly enjoy it. What was it that convinced you to pursue nephrology? Well, I've always had an interest in internal medicine, and this was a lot of internal medicine. And I think also the continuity of care that you have with patients, that you really get to where you know them and their families. Mr. Jurgensen, how about you? I sort of fell into it uh, in a very similar fashion. After I graduated in PA school many years ago, actually in 78, I was working in the hospital, and the subsequent year, I was asked to participate in a fellowship. We generally had two fellows at that time in the hospital. That At that time, it was a combined endocrine and renal fellowship at St. Raven's Hospital. Okay, so I'm curious now if we can briefly describe your day-to-day roles and, and sort of your responsibilities. I see dialysis patients as the primary role that I started with. I see generally about 100 and 50 patients at least a couple of times a month, oftentimes seeing them in between those visits for any issues that come up. And then I spend two days in the office seeing CKD patients, which also includes transplant patients. And I do an EPO clinic one morning a week and see PD patients once a week as well. They're very similar. I, about a third of my time is with dialysis patients. I help manage two different units in two different towns in Milford and North Haven. And then the other third is uh, office patients. Um, I have office patients usually every day, but at different clinics. So one is in North Haven, one is in New Haven, one is in Milford. And the other third of the time is uh, clinical research. Uh, So we do both uh, company-sponsored research and our own research that we try to present at meetings like at the ASN. Uh, Then I teach. I teach at Clinic and at Yale. You know, one of the challenges with nephrology is that nephrology is not as well-known in the public as as other specialties. And in kidney disease, there's not as much public awareness about kidney disease. And I'm wondering, as you first encounter patients, what sorts of conversations you have with them and, and what you can do or how you help patients know more about kidney disease, about what's likely to be their disease progression. When we see patients... Frequently, in our office, there are either consult patients that have been referred to our office for whatever kidney problem may have them present, whether it be CKD, whether it be kidney stones, whether it be an abnormal electrolyte pattern. And I try to sit with the patients and the family, if at all possible, to really try to educate them as to what is their problem and what we're planning to do about that problem. How much time can you spend with a patient? Well, with a consult, they tend to give me an hour and a half. So I do spend a fair amount of time with the patient. And part of the reason is with an initial consult, I do not see that patient obviously by myself. I see that patient with the attending. So anytime you do something with somebody else, it takes a little bit more time. Then after I see the patient with the attending and we have discussed the plan of action, then I 
I try to sit down with the family and the patient himself or herself and have a long discussion as to what the actual problem is. I try to introduce the whole problem before we see the attending. So many times the attending will say the same things that I just said so that the patient hears the same message twice, actually. good part is education, which I think is very important, and that's a, a big issue that we're trying to do a lot more in our, our office, and a lot of offices in nephrology are trying to do the same thing to get the message out as to what the kidney problems are. And kidney disease, we have posters all over the office, and I think just about a lot of places now, especially in view of the reimbursement issues with CKD education that are now available, I think everybody in the nephrology community is getting very involved in the educational process to try to teach both patients and to the family members and to the community issues uh, involving CKD and renal disease. I have a little different scenario. I actually don't see the patients on the initial consult visit, and so usually I'm not the one initially involved in all of that education. I think that it is very important, and oftentimes, they're not really aware of why they're being sent to us. They're told that they have some problems with their kidneys in kind of a general way. And so we have to give them a little more specific information depending on what level of CKD they're currently at. Oftentimes, it may not be until they're stage four, and then certainly we send them to a person who's in charge of that education. And that's not specifically me. In our practice, it's a fairly large practice, and so we have one person who we all try to send those patients to. Pretty much when I'm working with the patients for the first time, it's similar to Karen. I don't see them on their initial visit into the practice. I may see them on a follow-up or when they do start dialysis. And in addition to emphasizing how the disease progression will go along, um, I think it's important to initially teach them the new vocabulary that they have to use. We talk about creatinine and glomerular filtration rates and the patients just look at us like we're from outer space. So I kind of try and familiarize them with the different vocabularies that's going to be coming at them. Um, but one of the most important things that I try and get across to the patients is they're not sick. They just have kidney disease. So you don't need to have everyone in the house waiting on your hand and foot. You can still get up and get get what you need. You can still walk and still work. And the, the more active the patient stays, depending on their comorbidities, the better their outcomes overall. Better how, their how do they react to that? How do the patients react when you say that, that they're not sick, they have kidney disease, and, and that they need to be as active as possible? Well, for some of them, it's especially um, for the patients who are just starting on dialysis, it's actually very empowering. If you have someone who has been healthy and active and all of a sudden they got sick, went in the hospital, and they were told they have kidney disease. And then they go home, and nobody in the house lets them do anything. And they start to feel very helpless. When they're very first coming into that situation, if you, when I tell them, you're not sick, you just have kidney disease, you can get your own glass of water, you can walk into the kitchen for your meal, you don't have to have someone bring it to you. They're, they feel very empowered at that point. And we try to encourage them to maintain that feeling. So Mr. Jurgensen introduced the, this idea of, of communicating with the patient, with the family, and then with the community. And I'm just wondering um, how do you differentiate sort of those three categories? And if so, how would the message change? That's a great question, actually, because 
the one message you want to relate to the patient is an issue of what their actual problem is. So they're educated with whatever their real lesion is or why they're seeing it so that they know what it's all about. Then the second part of the whole discussion is, well, what do we do about it and how do you cope with it and how does that affect your life, which both involves the patient and the family. And so in that sense, it becomes a slightly different discussion because it tells you about the plans, about any new medication changes or deletions or additions, any further plans or any further consults or, or laboratory tests that you need to do with that patient and what henceforth will happen, whether you see them again next week after the exam or you see them again in three months because they're fairly stable. So in, in some ways, there, there are two different uh, discussions that you have with the patient. As far as the community at large, it's more of an overall global issue of renal disease that people need to be awareness of it. So the issues that affect lifespan and quality of life are issues of making sure that they do the proper things to maintain proper health. So you discuss issues and bring up issues of proper diet, heart health diet, blood pressure screening, proteinuria screening, diabetic screening. And so it's a different educational process in the setting. Yeah, I'd agree with Peter, and all of that community education is important. I think um, the KEEP screenings that are sponsored by the are really helpful in that regard. I think it varies so much as to what you're addressing with the patient initially. It's really interesting. Sometimes patients come to you and they think because they're seeing a kidney doctor, they're headed for dialysis right then and there. And um, fortunately, that's not always the case. Sometimes the patient's family is really the one that's more concerned about that, and it varies so much, of course, from patient to patient and family to family as to what needs to be addressed, but I think the underlying issues are those that Peter mentioned, not only what exactly is the type of kidney disease that they have, but what can we do to try to slow down the progression of that kidney disease and uh, help them know that there are some ways that that can be done. In terms of educational material, where do you think that the best information is as you provide it to the patients and their families? Well, I think the CKD4 education information that was provided by the National Kidney Foundation through the MIPA legislation has been really, really helpful. But I think that there are so many resources out there. It's just a matter of what they have available to them. Certainly, the Internet can be some good resources in of itself. Um, what we do, again, we have the formal CKD education class, and we do use that NKS uh, DVD as a guideline. I, I totally agree with that. Uh, in addition, I think it depends on who you're trying to reach and is it a large group of people, and you hope to try to get them both at CKD 3, 4, and, and definitely at CKD 5. But the earlier you get to, to folks at CKD 3 or 4, hopefully you'll have them much better impact in preventing further decline in renal function or at least, you know, slowing down the progression of CKD towards end-stage renal disease. And it, it, the, the problem is that you have both the written word in form of pamphlets as education material, and you have the written information that you can give to patients, and then you have the verbal part where you can educate patients. And I think a lot of it depends on where the patient is at and their educational ability to understand some of this incredibly complex information that they're hearing. Because, in a, you know, with CKD, you impact so many issues. It's volume issues, blood pressure issues, renal issues, anemia issues, 
um, dietary issues. So you're talking to these folks that they need to digest and understand a fair amount of fairly complex information. So it's not just a one-time visit, but it's a, and that's the nice thing about the MIPA, that you can have numerous visits during the year, but also their educational level. Are they able to understand all this complex information, digest it, and, and internalize it and see what they can do? So I think it's an issue of not just you presenting the data, but of other people as a community presenting that data. So my information is important, so is the diet, that dietitian's information is important. If um, a nurse uh, sees a patient or a technician, they can also impact and give some of this information. So it's a community effort to try to get the folks to understand what's going on. I think Peter's exactly right there. Fortunately, we have multiple avenues available to us to provide the patient with the education, and every time we can reiterate things that they need to learn is always beneficial. One of the other resources that we use, I believe it's American Academy of Kidney Patients, and they have some fabulous books out for the, the different stages of kidney disease. As you're looking at, once they first come into the nephrologist office, the pre-in-stage renal disease education, and as well as when it comes time to look towards some type of renal replacement therapy. And everything that we can do to educate the staff and everyone around them helps with the educational process because it is something that affects every avenue of their life. In terms of your interaction with a nephrologist, I'm sort of curious as to how much time you spend and, and how you approach each individual patient. Well, it depends on the setting that you see the nephrologist at any given time. Are you rounding in the dialysis unit and there are issues with dialysis patients where you need to address an issue here or an issue there, uh, volume management, blood pressure management, anemia management, um, or is it that um, you're seeing a consult and then it's a much longer discussion, or is it that you get lab results back and you say, okay, I need to talk to Dr. Smith about this issue because I really need to have his input as to how to manage this uh, somewhat very carefully and better. So it depends on the complexity of the patient. How could nephrologists communicate more effectively with PAs? Again, if you're talking with a PA within the group that they know that PA and they assume that PA over a period of time has understood the intricacies of a lot of things that you need to know as a PA in nephrology. So if they talk to you about a patient with CKD4 who has hyperparathyroidism and you want to do X, Y, and Z, that PA would know exactly what to do in that scenario. If it's a PA that's not trained in nephrology, then it has to be a more extensive discussion that I want X, Y, and Z, but let me explain to you why I want X, Y, and Z. So a nephrologist just needs to be aware when they talk to a PA as to what their degree of understanding is. So, for example, if a hematologist or oncologist talks to me about certain treatment, they will have to go into a little bit more detail because I don't know that, that subspecialty that well. On the other hand, when a PA discusses the issue with an MD, my thoughts on this issue are very concise, and I always try to teach that because I teach students all the time, that when you speak to an MD, you want to have all the information at your fingertips. So you just don't go to him and or to her and say, I have a patient that has this problem. You want to say, I have this patient that has this problem. These are the labs. These are the medications. This is what I'm concerned about. What do you think? so that you have a concise, very rapid, good information, as if you're presenting at rounds. You, you want to have everything right then and there before you talk to the nephrologist because they're fairly busy usually and they don't have time to then have to do their own investigation. You want to give them all the information at once. One of the things that I encounter, because I do 
dialysis rounds at seven different dialysis units. And each unit has a different medical director. And there are certain things that each medical director has their way of doing things, slight differences in their management of a particular problem with a patient. So I keep a very open line of communication with my doctors so I can make sure when I'm in their unit that I'm managing the patient closest to the way that they would want to see them managed. Some doctors would use Zemplar vitamin D analog before they would use Sensapar. Some doctors would go to Sensapar first. So it's just kind of getting a feel for that physician and making sure that we just keep a very open line of communication. If I come across a patient that's a bit more complicated or I have an issue, if I call my my medical directors on an issue because I don't call them very often, they generally slow down and we go over it and discuss how they want to proceed with that, that complicated issue. And then when I'm working in the office on the CKD patients, I actually have another, there's a whole other group of physicians that I'm working with at that point. But we've established a relationship where I can go to them and discuss patients. And as Peter said, make sure that I've got all my ducks in a row before I come to them with my concerns and present to them what my care plan would be and then see if they agree with that or if they want to make changes. Each of you have mentioned MIPA, the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Providers Act of 2008, and the, the, the education benefit. I'm wondering if there's other either federal or state legislation, recent federal or state legislation, that has had either a positive or a negative effect on your ability to treat patients. Obviously, the bundling is going to be a, an interesting issue to see what happens on how we can manage specific patients as far as some of the ability to, to treat their specific problems because from my perspective, you'll uh, be limited in, in some ways as to make sure that you don't do enormous financial constraints on a dialysis provider. So it'll be interesting to see what we can do if there's going to be limitations on lab tests that we can do or frequency of lab tests or doses of medication in managing these patients Again, the main issue is that you have good quality outcomes, that you're managing the patients appropriately, that they get the proper care in the dialysis unit. So I think you'll see that, but I think we'll have some more constraints possibly in what we can order or cannot order in the dialysis setting. And, and that's just my projected thought right now. It may not come to reality, but different people have different opinions. It'll be interesting to see what actually happens once that occurs. I think the bundling is definitely the thing that we've all been eyeing recently. I think those um, particular labs that you can order are within all of the written rules, however many hundreds of pages they were. But I am happy to see that the oral medications have not been included, at least for a few years more, because I think it's going to be enough of potential constraint just with, as Peter said, the potential labs that you can order. Where I am, we tend to do sometimes more of their primary care than maybe is ideal in terms of ordering A1Cs and lipids and things like that. And I'm not sure that that is going to be an option. Again, I think those labs are in there, and I briefly glanced at them, but haven't committed them to memory yet. I'd, I'd be worried about you if you had already committed them to memory. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about the the a 
Affordable Care Act, the, the health reform legislation. I'm thinking more broadly perhaps than, than kidney disease and, and the field of if people were thinking about careers as physician assistants, would, do you think the health reform will have a positive or negative effect on, on that as, as, as a career? I'm not sure, but I think we're all going to be a lot busier. <laughs> I foresee, really. I don't know uh, positive or negative, but... Um... Well, there were some recent articles on that whole issue that if you look in the field of primary care, they're expecting an incredible need, though. There's always been a projected physician shortage, but now they're, they're, the feeling is that there's going to be even so more uh, for several reasons. One because of an aging population that you'll have after 2030, a large proportion of the population in the United States will be over the age of 65. Now that population will have insurance. And so now you're going to have to have more primary care people. The issue is, will people want to go in that field? Because right now the financial income or the income in that field is not quite as high in the subspecialties. But again, there is a projected high need for primary care physicians, and that'll be the same thing for PAs. I think they'll find a niche in the primary care field. The question is, will that also happen in the subspecialties like nephrology? But from my perspective, what you'll see is you'll see more referrals of people coming to nephrology because they will now have been diagnosed as having some problems with CKD, proteinuria, hypertension, whatever case may be, and they'll be referred to nephrology. I guess as I'm, I'm sort of thinking about this issue, do you see the role of a PA changing as a result of potential shortages in health providers, particularly primary care physicians? I don't think that necessarily the role of the PA will change. I think there'll be more utilization of PAs because our our role is um, to provide that extra support to our physician and our practices and to expand coverage um, without the addition of another um, physician. And I think in that, I think our role has already been pretty well established. We'll probably see more utilization of PAs. I just recently read an article that sort of made a lot of sense to me that at present, with the economy the way it is, you are seeing some physicians working longer and than they normally would have, and, and some of them in the primary care field. And all of a sudden, they're going to disappear in the next five to ten years because they will have to retire due to age. And the financial constraints that are also present right now due to the economy has prevented some PAs from being hired in the primary care field because the income is not there for some physicians to hire the PAs. So all of a sudden that may be changing in the next five to ten years. One, if the economy changes around, and two, because all of a sudden those MDs are going to be gone and you haven't had the new MDs come into that field, that you're actually going to have an increased demand for PAs because they're less expensive and and the demand will be there for them to take care of all these people that are suddenly coming into the into the medical system. So financially, I think it will be driven to have more PAs in the primary care field. A couple times, I think each of you has mentioned um, the, the aging of the population, and, and I'm wondering how you handle end-of-life situations and discussions with patients and, and your role in, in that part of the care continuum. From my perspective, I don't have a great role in that arena. 
arena primarily, I think, because I'm not in the hospital where oftentimes these discussions are taking place. Not to say that they don't occur times in the office or the dialysis clinic. There are some palliative medicine physicians here locally that can be very, very helpful in that respect. And, of course, hospice um, also can play a very important role. But in terms of the actual conversations with the patient, um, mine are generally more brief and not quite as involved, I think, because they're generally in the outpatient setting. Right. Um, In our practice, I'm not directly involved in the final arrangements, but as you're watching the patients in the dialysis unit and you start to realize a need, then I can start the conversation with the family and the patients to be aware that paying attention to the signs that this is something they need to start thinking about and they need to figure out what their what their plan is going to be in the eventuality. I totally agree, especially uh, more so in the patients that you've known for a long time and that you've gotten to know the family and you get feedback from the family and you give them feedback that as you see the patient decline and you have more information usually than the family does from the medical end of things obviously because you have the lab data, you have um, issues of nutrition data and all the information that really tell you that this patient is going downhill. And then you can have the discussions. I'm, I'm involved with those quite frequently because you sort of become the primary care provider many times of these patients and you try to make the transition from and help them transition to this sort of uh, last phase of their life with their family as much as possible. Before I ask a closing question, I just want to see if there's something that I should have asked that I didn't that you'd like me to ask. I guess from my perspective, having been in nephrology for 30 years, that a PA involved in the uh, nephrology field and in the uh, care of patients that have both CKD ESRD has actually been quite fulfilling and quite gratifying. So you tend to have caring folks usually in nephrology because they know it's a field that requires long-term care and and it's not like in the emergency room you see the patient once and you never have follow-up with them. In our field, you tend to see the patients, you develop a lasting relationship with the patients and they're very complex patients because it involves so many organ systems aside from the kidney. And then in another essence is it's a subspecialized field because you are not only taking care of patients with CKD in different stages, but also end-stage renal disease that puts them in a totally different ballpark of medical problems and management issues. So from my perspective, it's a very satisfying field, and I hope more PAs who graduate or or decide to change careers go into nephrology. And it's a very satisfying field to be in uh, if you like to take care of patients over a long period of time and and deal with patients, be able to sit down and talk with them and their families. There was a quote somewhere, and I wish I could remember exactly what it says, but it was something about when your patient dies, you end up getting a thank you note and cookies from the family because they really do, in some ways, kind of become your extended family. You do get to know them after seeing them, you know, every week or every two weeks for many years. Very rewarding. I've been in nephrology for just over five years now, and I agree completely with Karen and Peter. It is the most satisfying job I've ever had. Some days you can come in and it can be a little frustrating, but we're able to do so much for these people in so many different aspects 
of their lives. And we can help them in so many different aspects. And as Peter was saying, the the wonderful thing of being able to follow a patient long-term, back in the early 90s, I was a paramedic. And the most frustrating thing to me was you worked so hard to get this patient to the hospital. You got them to the ER. You have to leave them there and get out to the next call as fast as possible. And it's very, very hard to find out if you actually had an impact and if that patient survived or or what happened and what, what the next thing is. Now, I follow my patients for years. I I know some of my patients better than I know some of my coworkers if we're working at different facilities. And um, it's very, very rewarding and very satisfying when you, you have an impact on their life and their families. Well, I'd just like to thank um, the three of you for sharing your nearly 60 years of experience as nephrology PAs with our audience today. Well, thank you very much for inviting us. Thank you very much. ASN Kidney News is a publication of the American Society of Nephrology. The ideas and opinions expressed by participants in ASN Kidney News podcasts are their own and do not necessarily reflect the positions of the society. To lead the fight against kidney disease, ASN helps its 11,000 members provide high-quality care to patients, conduct cutting-edge research, and educate the next generations of kidney care professionals. To learn more about ASN or Kidney News, please visit the Society's website at asn-online.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.